Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Rabbi, what must I do to get in on God's future? Or to put it another way, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, instead of answers, he shoots back a question, verse 26, what's written in the Torah? I.e., do you know your Bible? What's written? And Jesus adds to that, how do you read it? As in, what is your interpretation? Verse 27, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. Wow, it's not a bad answer. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, and chucked in mind as well, just like Jesus likes to do so far. He's spot on. But he doesn't stop there. He adds Leviticus 19, verse 18 as well, and he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. If we're reading from the JSM instead of the NIV or NRSV, JSM is the Jared Saul McKenna translation, it would say, giddy up. You're correct. Spot on. That's it. Jesus says, you're right. Do this and you'll live. Verse 30, in reply of verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, people know where we're going? Let's go there. Someone was walking down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of thieves. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man but passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. 33, but a Samaritan, one of those dodgy, dirty Samaritans, as he travelled, he came where the man was and where he saw him and was moved by compassion. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn to take care of him personally. The next day he took out two silver coins and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for the extra expense you may have. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor of the man who fell into the hands of thieves? The expert of the law replied, notice not even able to say who it was, simply replies, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do that. Go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, as uncomfortable as it is. If there was a title for this sermon, it might be When We Are Right, But Still So Very Wrong. When We Are Right, But Still So 
very wrong. This morning, uh, before we pray, I'm going to let you do some preaching. If you're first time at Cornerstone, uh, it's simple. All you have to do is repeat what I say to the person next to you. If you haven't said hello yet and you're a bit shy, it's a great excuse to make a friend. So I'm going to invite you to turn to someone next to you and say, neighbor. And just to make sure they're paying attention, say, oh, neighbor. Mercy is our destiny. Mercy is eternal life. You're preaching well. This is a good sermon. I like that. I can see how you got there. One more time. Neighbor? Oh, neighbor. Am I a neighbor? That's where we're going today. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we're very aware that there is a sweet, sweet presence in this place. And we know it is the Spirit of the Lord. It's a sweet, Holy Spirit, sweet, heavenly light. Would you invade our darkness? Would heaven come crushing, crashing into earth? Would your very presence invade this moment that we might take these words on a page and encounter the word Jesus who is here amongst us, drawing us deeper into your heart, Father. Father, reveal your heart to us through your Son in the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. May this not merely be a religious exercise on a Sunday morning, but instead would it be an encounter that would change us in such ways that we live the mercy that you show us. Lord, teach us to be a neighbor, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. April 3rd, 1968, Martin Luther King, despite his fatigue, has responded to Reverend Jim Lawson and has gone down to Memphis. He has faced criticism for speaking out against the war in Vietnam, famously nearly to the day, one year before, at Riverside Church in New York on April 4th, 1967 and now he's facing further criticism because as he would explain I've spent too long fighting segregation out there to segregate my moral beliefs it is not merely racism that Martin Luther King will challenge but it is also militarism and also as he described materialism in terms of poverty Martin Luther King is in Memphis because of poor people who are getting paid nothing after a garbage man was in the back of a garbage vehicle, a black man who couldn't afford a new uniform or even shoes, and the person operating it turned on the switch to compact the garbage, and he was crushed in the back and was killed. Martin Luther King is down in Memphis, and this is the night before he'll be assassinated on April 4th early morning, April 4th, shot rings out in a Memphis sky. Any you 2 fans in the house? I see that hand, I see that hand. This is what he ends his sermon with, his I've been to the mountaintop sermon with, is an allusion to what he calls this marvellous story. And what we're going to spend our time doing is recovering this marvellous story in such ways that it's miraculous power can be released in our lives instead of the ways that we make safe with it. We sanitize it, we clean it up, 
we deodorize it, and we domesticate it instead of the radical challenge that it is. See, this story, Jesus is being asked one of those questions by one of those people who wants to show that they're in the right. And sometimes we assume certain motives to these people. But if you've ever met somebody who fiercely believes where they're coming from is right, you know that they can do dodgy things to others and explain it away for a greater good. You met those people? Yeah, but it was for a greater good. Have you been those people? Yeah, but it was for a greater good. And so he wants to justify himself in front of others. And it's a bit like if somebody was to corner Pastor Tara after church this afternoon and in front of a crowd say, what's your take on insert controversial issue? Whatever controversial issue you want to choose. What's your take on BAM? And you know it's the kind of thing where everybody's going to turn, even if they're not supposed to be listening in, and lean in and wanting to know what's going on. This question that the young lawyer asks isn't a question merely about personal salvation when he talks about eternal life. He is a Jewish person. Jesus is a Jewish person. And the Hebraic hope, the Jewish hope, is not for a disembodied soul to go to some place up in the sky in the by and by with fat little babies with wings. It's that the earth will be made right. It's that justice will have the last word. It's that compassion and mercy will flood all of reality as the waters cover the seas. And so when he says eternal life, he's not asking about what happens when you die. He's asking what happens life after life after death, as N.T. Wright would put it. When God makes the world as God longs it to be, when what we see in Jesus is realized throughout all of reality, how do I get in on that? So in Matthew 25, when Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats, and one group inherits the kingdom of God, it's the same word, inherit. How do I take part, take that which is mine? In the same way, if a family member was to die, you might inherit what is theirs, He's asking the same question. How do I take and make my own this future that we hope for? It's a question of who we are as God's people. He's saying to Jesus, who are we to be as God's people? And he's asking in such a controversial way, cornering him in a public place because he wants to catch him out. He wants to look good. He wants his agenda, his faction, his theology to be seen in such a way that people are like, yeah, I'm down with that young guy dedicated his life to studying scripture he obviously knows what's up and Jesus he's a bit dodgy didn't answer the question directly did he went on all these kind of tangents he like won't give us a straight answer instead he talks about all this other stuff so Jesus sidesteps him and asks a different question and what we want to do with a short amount of time we have this morning before we come around the table is make sure we don't sidestep Jesus' challenge to us in this text because there are easy ways because of the way that this story has been so domesticated and sanitized and made safe that we talk about we're going down to the good sammies to give our clothes away we talk if, if you're doing medical ethics we talk about um, uh, the legal requirements on someone of how far i should go if, if we're talking social psychology the story of the good samaritan uh, will come up to talk about uh, like what is required of the other peter singer um, Australian provocative uh, utilitarian philosopher uses the story of the Good Samaritan to talk about what are our responsibilities to other. But what we always miss 
is the controversy of what Jesus is doing with using the example of a Samaritan. Those who know their Bible will know that the chapter before, in chapter 9, they're walking through where? I know I'm a preacher, but it's not a hypothetical question. They're walking through where? Open book tests. Feel free to look. They're on their way to Jerusalem, and they go through Samaria. And how do the Samaritans respond to Jesus? Do they welcome him? Do they like, hey, we want to listen to Jesus? Jesus is the Messiah. How do they respond to Jesus? There's no welcome. There's no embrace. And you've got to imagine, as a follower of Jesus, nothing is more dear to them than Jesus. If there's anything worth fighting for, surely it's Jesus. If there's anything worth giving your life for, surely it's Jesus. And they're walking through Samaria. You know, there's Samaritans. You know, there's people that 700-odd years ago, when the Assyrians came in and they invaded, they sold us out. They joined them. They married interracially. They're wrong when it comes to their understanding of God. They practice faith the wrong way. They sold us out. They're not down for the revolution. They're part of the problem. And it's their unholiness and it's their weird agenda is part of the reason why God hasn't liberated us. Because if we could only just be holy and righteous for one day, this is what the Pharisees believed, then we'd be liberated from Rome. That's why the Pharisees have a hard time with prostitutes and tax collectors. It's like if we get it right just for one day, then we will be liberated. We will be set free. And so this is how they relate to them. And so James and John, these sons of thunder, they're walking through Samaria and Jesus is rejected by the Samaritans. These people who are kind of like us, but not. These people who are kind of related to us, but not. I don't know what the fun equivalent is for you. For those from the US, it might be Canadians. Uh, from those from Australia, it might be New Zealanders. It's like you kind of like, but if they beat you at the rugby, you are so sore, right? Imagine that and then times it a thousand. That's what's going on. And so James and John, what's their response to Jesus? They ask Jesus one question about Samaritans and they're like, do you want us to do what? Anybody know? Should we pray down blessings? No. Should we nuke them? Do you want us to pray that God will just, just blow them up? They have rejected Jesus if there's ever a justification for God sending down fire. And I can, like, I can go to Second Kings. I can uh, do a bit of Elijah Bible quoting. I know there's a precedence before. Maybe there's a precedence now. Should we call down fire on those who have rejected you? And Jesus responds, giddy up. No, he says, no. In fact, some early manuscripts add, you don't know what spirit you are of. If we think of an appropriate response to Jesus or to those who reject Jesus is calling down fire, unless that fire is the fire of God's love, it is unfaithful. And in fact, instead of it being like the Holy Spirit, it's like an unclean spirit. Can I go there this morning? Instead of it being like the spirit the Holy Ghost, it looks like an unclean spirit. It might look like the spirit of Satan. If you try and curse your enemies and then say, I'm justified in doing so because they have rejected Jesus, Jesus said, you don't know what spirit has overtaken you. There is a spirit at work in your imagination and heart and life. If you are wanting to curse those who reject Jesus, because guess what? Jesus does not reject them. 
Jesus goes on to say that the Son of Man did not come to destroy life, but to save it. So we jump back into chapter 10, and suddenly we're in this marvelous story as King described it. This story that animated and shaped so much of his own life. A story which is the reason why he's in Memphis, despite the fact people are like, why are you diluting your cause by focusing on poor people? Don't you know you could be more successful if you stop talking about how war is wrong and how poor people, that's our problem, not other people's problem. And why don't you just focus on, why don't you stay in your lane, Martin Luther King? Why don't you just keep talking about racism? The bullet that we will find him at the Lorraine Motel the next day, early that next day, that is because of his solidarity with those others would simply walk past. His solidarity with garbage men who people in society just think are garbage. And Jesus, in this story, when this young guy wants to trap him and get people on his agenda, Jesus says, how do you understand the Torah? What's your take? And the guy gives the right answer for all the wrong reasons. Have you met those people? Have we been those people? When we can quote Bible verses in such a way that we undo what God is seeking to do, or instead of bringing heaven to earth, we just enforce a little bit of hell that's already here. Or instead of blessing our neighbors and enemies, we curse those that God loves and Christ died for. These are the dynamics of this uncomfortable story that literally made people leave instead of listen to the word of God. These are the dynamics of why I don't want to deal with a Jesus who would throw it back at me, not simply want the right answer, but place it, to quote Martin Luther King, on a dangerous road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And our assumptions of who's in and who's out are turned upside down. If I was to say the butcher, the baker, you would say... If I was to say the father, the son, you would say... If I was to say the priest, the Levite, you would say... You might say Samaritan because we know this text. Anybody listening to the story would say the Israelite. That's how the story's supposed to go. Butcher, baker, candlestick maker, priest, Levite, Israelite. Jesus goes, priest, Levite, your enemy. See, you thought loving your enemies was hard. Jesus says here, not only love your enemies, but learn to love from your enemies. Can you see how hard that is? See, we read this story in such ways where we think Samaritan is who we're supposed to be. We identify with the Samaritan instead of with the man who's been stripped of everything so we don't know his identity. See, where the identity is open for us to associate ourselves with is with the one who's by the side of the road. What we're supposed to do when we hear Samaritan is go, and I don't know your prejudice. I don't know who you hate. I don't know who, when you think about eternal life, go, not them. I don't know when you think about God's future and who will get in on what God is on about, and you go, not them. But Jesus takes whoever you have that prejudice about and says, that person, watch that person in this story. 
because there is a character that no one expected and it should make us all uncomfortable. That's what it is to take the scripture authoritatively in our lives, is to let Jesus confront us in such a way where we realize that Jesus isn't necessarily down with our side and he comes to us as a stranger. And those that we think are other and outside, look at how they love and let that be a model of what love looks like in your own life. So to jump back into the text and to tell the story. Man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell in the hands of robbers or thieves. My dad and I went back to uh, where his family's from in Belfast and uh, family members that we stayed with just around the corner, um, there's, there's literally on one street away graffiti on the wall that says, join the real IRA. The real IRA uh, are a group who, after the IRA came into power with Sinn Féin and got political respectability, they felt it was sold out. And so instead, they um, uh, wanted to continue the terrorist uh, tactics uh, uh, for the freedom uh, for a united island. And to do so, what they would do was sell drugs in the neighbourhood and destroy the neighbourhood while talking revolutionary ways. But actually, this new group, the real IRA, are actually a group of thieves. They're a gang. They're a mob. When Jesus' listeners would have heard this story, it starts with a group of people that you're supposed to associate with and go, that's us at our worst. See, these are people who, because of their lands being taken off them by the Romans, because of the way that they've been forced out, because of the heavy taxation, group of young people, this is the same word that's used for those later in Luke's gospel who are on Jesus' right and left on the cross. These are these young revolutionaries. These are these young, and these groups, they justified robbing people, particularly if, you know, you show up in some nice gear, justified it for the revolution. They're the dynamics that are going on. So when you hear that these robbers, you go, oh my goodness, that's our people at our worst. It's like when you hear people talk about those kind of Christians at a dinner party and you're like, oh, I'm not that kind of Christian. No, that's not me. Like, it's, a, it's that kind of embarrassment. It's that kind of shame. It's like, oh, these robbers. A man falls in the hand of these robbers. And then you start to hear the story of your heroes or who you expect to be your heroes. See, we hear priests and we might have negative associations. But for them, this is a person who literally represents you before God. This is like saying, our senior pastor was walking down the road. This is somebody who you associate with and go, they have dedicated their life to God. This is who I'm proud of. This is who represents us, literally, in the temple, but also in the community. And we get so hard on him crossing the road. But ritualistically, there are requirements on him that if he goes near a dead body, you remember the half-dead bit? If they are dead and he crosses the road and finds that they are dead, well, when he gets home, he can't serve his community. You couldn't go into the temple for two days. You have to sit at the eastern gate and he would have to sacrifice a heifer to make himself clean because as the representative of the people, he has a responsibility to serve the community and sometimes we realise that mercy is inconvenient, that compassion gets in the way of our cause and our agenda. And actually, it's not just about me, but what about others? Martin Luther King jokes that maybe they're on their way to a 
Jericho Road Improvement Association meeting and didn't want to be late for the meeting. But the point is that those who we're supposed to hear and go, that's like our senior pastor, that's like the person who represents us, they cross over the street. So there's the first, there's the injustice of being robbed, violently abused, and then being stripped and taken from everything that actually holds your dignity together and says who you are is gone, and instead you're naked and ashamed. And then you have the double disgrace of not only being abandoned by the people who have done this to you, but abandoned by those who walk by. They talk about violent crimes, and one of the most difficult things about violent crimes is not merely when that happens there, but how people respond here afterwards. The sense of isolation that a victim feels, that people cross over and walk away instead of getting near and having a proximity to pain. And so the first part of the story should leave us going, oh, we should identify with the good guys who are our guys like the priest. And you're like, hang on, there's another character that's just about to enter the story. And the next character is someone that you really respect. It's like a doctor or a lawyer. It's somebody who works in local government. It's somebody who you hear at Levi and you're like, underneath the priest, that's some of our best. That's some of the most respectable people who we identify with. And the Levite responds how? The same way. Maybe the Levite is concerned for safety. Uh, I recently came back from um, preaching in Cape Town in South Africa. The reality is if you see a car broken down at night in Cape Town, everybody told me, do not stop. Under any circumstances, do not stop. What about your own safety? What if this person has been roughed up to look like that and is actually part of these thieves and you're actually going to be taken advantage of by this gang who are trying to fund their revolution by ripping you off? What about your own safety? So we're supposed to hear this and not judge them and go, religious people don't even care. We're supposed to go, it's me. That's our mob. That's our crew. That's how we would respond. And then we hear this story of a who. You insert your prejudice. Who is, is it gay people? Is it Muslims? Is it uh, people on welfare? Uh, is it really wealthy people who live in Peppermint Grove? Is it whatever your prejudice is, whatever it is that you're like, those people. That's who Jesus says here. He says this person comes along and notice there are nine delivering actions. See, they all saw. It repeats each time. They saw, they saw, they saw. The difference is in verse 33 is that the Samaritan sees and has mercy on him, is moved with compassion. The same word that's used in the first chapter of Luke's gospel to talk about why God sends a Messiah because God has this kind of compassion. God has this kind of sharing in the sufferings. So that's literally what the word compassion means. Come from the Latin meaning with, passion, where we get the term like passion of Christ, sufferings. Compassion means to share in the sufferings, to be there with in the sufferings. It's not merely a feeling, but as you see here, it moves to action. Because some of us can be really good at compassion, right? We're like, oh, that's horrible. Look at what those children are experiencing in Gaza. I wonder what's on the next channel. 
and we feel better because emotionally we've shed a tear. But he doesn't let his empathy be about him. He doesn't ask the question, how do I respond? His focus is not on himself. So first he sees, and then he responds with compassion, and then he puts his compassion in action. Verse 34, he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring out oil and wine. Now, those were just a little bit of knowledge of how what the priest and Levite might have been coming and going in their doings. What is oil and wine used in? Anybody know the prophets? Worship. Oil is for anointing. When the prophets talk about, I don't want your rivers of oil, I want justice, buckets of it. Your incense is putrid to me. Your worship revolts me. What I want is mercy, justice, compassion. This is the kind of worship that God calls for. And the young lawyer who's asking questions, very real questions about what is it to be God's people? And Jesus isn't playing his games. He goes, you know the answers. You give the right Sunday school answers. You know those Bible verses. And he's like, yeah, yeah, but let me find a technicality. Here's my loophole. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus starts telling dangerous stories that make us feel so uncomfortable because suddenly it's not about us. It's about others. And we realize that our love for God is only seen in its depth in our love for others. And everything else is just a game. It's praying on street corners. It's, it's looking good and handing over big checks so others see us and think, think we're fantastic. But Jesus wants to talk about our prejudices, even if they're justifiable. Our bigotry and our lack of mercy and hold up those that we would reject and say, that is what it looks like. Bandage his wounds, pour out oil and while they put the man on his own donkey. If somebody's on your donkey, guess what you can't be on? Your donkey. It means you have to give up something for somebody else. See, all the others, they ask, I don't know who they are. This guy doesn't ask a question about who they are. The Samaritan asks a question about who I am. His question is, what is it to be God's people? What is it to be Israel? What is it to be God's people and take part in God's future? And the others go, we don't know who they are. They might make us unclean. The Samaritan goes, I know who I am, and I'm going to respond with mercy. Can you hear the difference? One goes, because I'm a child of God, I see and I don't merely see someone beaten and think my own safety. I see another child of God and think about their safety. This is someone who's sharing in the mercy that is God. Someone who's actually taking part in who God is. Some of you know that last November I went to Manus Island. I was smuggled in the same way that the New York Times got in, uh, the, the same way um, that the Guardian newspapers got in. We went in with... Um, a brilliant camerawoman, and also Father Dave, who's an Anglican priest, to document what is happening to refugees. And you're like, whoa, 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 this is Sunday. Don't talk about politics, let's talk about piety. See, the danger is, if we ignore Jesus, we can do that quite well. We can lift our hands every Sunday, but if that doesn't translate into reaching out our hands to those that are in need, we're just playing games. See, if you're standing on the other side of the road, and you have no proximity to the pain of the person who is there, you see whatever issues they're going through and you go, politics. 
That's politics. But when you cross the road and you share somebody else's suffering, when you share somebody else's burden, when you share in the sufferings of Christ, it's no longer politics, it's personal. It's a person. And Jesus doesn't want to play the games of the young lawyer who goes, okay, tell me my politics. Is it them? Is it them? Is it them? Is it them? And Jesus is like, I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about making God's mercy the movement which motivates your very life. Getting a proximity to pain where you can see the situation, be moved with compassion and make mercy your movement towards them. Can you see how different that is? So going to Manus, it's no longer a political issue. I met hundreds, literally hundreds of people who were seeking safety. People who in tears talked about their family members being tortured and killed in front of them and then getting on boats seeking safety who are now on an island just above mainland Papua New Guinea are set up on prisons where they've been for five years. And you're like, whoa, 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 this is political. And it's like, no, no, no. These are questions of mercy. See, when it comes to refugees, if we're like the lawyer, we will ask, are they my neighbour? If we pay attention to the story Jesus is giving us, the question is, are we a neighbour? Are we being a neighbour? See, we want to say, are they in or out? And Jesus is asking, are you in or out with eternity? Because God's future is mercy. When 1 Corinthians 15 says God will be all in all, it means that God is through everything. Everything is drenched with the presence of God. If you have a problem with love now, you will have a problem with love eternally. If you have a problem with mercy now, you will have a problem with mercy eternally. And the question for us is, do we enter this dangerous story, what Martin Luther King called a magnificent story, in such ways where we judge like the lawyer and say, that's over there, that's politics, don't talk about that kind of stuff, or will we like the Samaritan or like whoever you've got prejudices against and say, they're not in, will we get close enough where we see, respond with mercy, and put that mercy into action. As some of you know, when I was on Manus, we spent seven hours documenting their stories and it went on Al Jazeera and it went on the ABC and it was featured on Late Line. But as we were leaving, we were caught by the Papua New Guinean military. Caught is in terms of they saw us. A big spotlight hit us on the beach and we went from the ones who were there trying to provide something for somebody else to the ones who needed something provided for. Literally, Father Dave's already on the boat and the boat starts up as we're on the beach and the spotlight hits us under the, this black night sky only pierced by the stars. Engine starts up, they go out, literally the, the light bl like it blinds us and so we're all ducking down trying to get out of the way and then somebody says, run. And so Olivia and I are still on the shore and we run back through the forest, through this jungle, looking for a way back into the detention centre because if we know we get in there, we're, we've got safety. They weren't allowed in there because the military a year before at Easter fired their weapons after getting drunk on Good Friday into the detention centre. So they're not allowed back in there. 
And so we're running through the jungle, totally disorientated, falling down. I didn't notice at the time just because of the adrenaline that I actually slashed my ankle open and I've got a scar now. And so I'm bleeding, I'm disorientated, I have no, way, no idea where to go. And I just hear this voice say, brother, take my hand. And this hand just appears out of nowhere in front of me. Like a little kid like crossing the street scared, I take this hand and the guy's name is Adam. Adam is from Defoe. Adam has survived genocide in Defoe and has now spent five years in detention. He's with a year within the age of my son. And this young guy who others would go, you're not welcome here, you're other, you're an outsider, has taken my hand. And once they bring me into the detention centre, they're not like, okay, you're safe now but they brought us to where they were collecting water because all their water had been turned off by the Australian government off the roof and their limited water, they washed my feet. Now, you know, for us as Cornerstone, like washing feet and what that means to us. This is, this is a sign of how our Lord conquers, no longer with a sword, but with a towel. And so I've just got tears streaming down my face as they wash my feet, wash all, all the blood off. And they're like, come, you're still not safe. Let us take you to a room. Two of the guys gave up their demountable. There's no electricity because the government has cut off all electricity to try and force these people out. And they gave up their room, their shelter, for me and Olivia, two Australians. All food rations had been cut off for 19 days. And they come in with their Maggi noodles and with water, drinking water, their limited water, that local Manusian churches have smuggled in to the centre, because regardless of what the government says, they're like, we are Christians and we're going to stand with these people. Much like the Samaritan, oil, wine, putting me on a donkey, taking me to the inn, saying, here, you might extort me, but here's all the money up front and I will pay you back anything. And that's actually a legal ledger, that expression. I will pay you back in full. It's saying everything I've covered and you can take me to court if I don't come up with the money. See, our nation rejects those who accepted me, who we think are ours, the priests and the Levites, and like they're our leaders. We didn't see from them what God asks here. We saw it from those who they had rejected. Australia has literally said these people are not worthy of safety, not worthy of human rights, not worthy of all the laws that we put in place. So after the Holocaust of six million Jews, the world said never again, never again will we allow this to happen. Never again will we turn back people seeking safety, of which boats were turned back from Germany to the US and they turned them back and people met their death in concentration camps. And the world said, we will never do that again. In fact, refugee just means somebody like you and me who needs safety. That's it. That's all it means. It's not a crime to seek asylum because Psalm says you're seeking safety. If we demonize those in situations who are receiving domestic violence, if we demonize those in situations who are the victim of war, if we demonize those who need safety, what spirit is operating in us? What spirit is operating in us? We can claim the Holy Spirit on a Sunday. We can have our hands in the air. We can have carpet time. But if a spirit is operating in us that demonizes those who desperately need deliverance, what spirit is in us? And Jesus tells stories where he takes Samaritans 
outsiders, those Muslim refugees. And he says, let me tell you a story about some guy who's going on the road and you don't know whether, you don't know their race, you don't know their religion, you don't know their class, you don't know their ethnicity, you don't know their nationality. All you see is a naked body. And these refugees, they saw me and they didn't say, is Jared my neighbour? They asked the question, am I a neighbour to Jared? And they took me in and they showed me the kind of mercy that we as Australians have shown in the past. In the 1970s, under a Liberal government, Malcolm Fraser led our nation and the world in a regional compassionate response where we said, we will take desperate people needing safety. We will be leaders in compassion. We have a moral vision of being the kind of nation that actually upholds human rights laws instead of doing wrongs to human beings. And this story, if we take it seriously, isn't like, hey, go and be nice to people or go and donate some clothes down at the op shop. It's a dangerous story about our own prejudices and how Jesus longs to save us from our prejudices, from our judgment of others and calls us that real faith is actually seen in the practicing of it. As we finish, I'm aware that in the news this week has been certain politicians from certain nations, maybe just north of Canada, or just south of Canada and just north of Mexico, who have said that Romans 13 is a justification for upholding laws and calling for the kind of passivity that would say if families are being ripped apart, it's fine. You might have seen in the news this week that somebody in Nauru with mental health problems because they've been there indefinitely for three, four, five years took their own life. And we will respond to this story, this story, based upon how we respond to them. And if we allow scripture to be quoted in such ways, Hitler used the same passage to call for passivity in the German Christian population, Romans 13. It was true of the slaveholders and their religion as well. It was true of the colonizers and their religion as well. And our decision is when it comes to Romans 13, will we interpret it like the Apostle Paul, who wrote it, who went to jail and wrote a whole heap of his books from jail and was executed by the Roman Empire, or will we understand it and quote it like Hitler, like slaveholders, like the way it's been taught? Are we going to take scripture and ask, am I Israel? What's my definition? Who's in and out? How can I justify myself and say, they're not my neighbor? Or am I going to ask the question, am I being a neighbor? The love of my life is here and she's Baptist. And her grandfather was a mentor for me. And he always said, you, you never end a sermon without taking it to the cross. So let's move from a ditch by Jericho Road to a hill outside of Jerusalem. Your invitation this morning for all of us is to respond to a God who didn't stay on the other side of the road. A God who crossed over and saw us in our beaten state, our nakedness, our identity stripped, us left half dead. 
and didn't merely give like the Samaritan gives, but himself on that hill at Calvary, he was stripped naked. He was beaten. He was left half dead and then died so that we might say yes to God's future, God's eternal life, God's mercy. And the only way we resist receiving that mercy is if we resist showing it to others. We are participants in God's grace and recipients of God's grace. Recipients first, but we cannot be recipients of mercy if we are not participants in God's agenda of mercy. When we give you a prophecy and send you out each week at Cornerstone, calling you to take part in God's kingdom of mercy, it's because the mercy that God shows us at Calvary, that is ours in the resurrection, that is poured out upon us at Pentecost, this mercy is eternity. It's what we were made for. We were made for mercy. We were created for compassion. And you will miss the call on your life unless you step into the mercy that is shown to you at Calvary and learn to live that love to others. The invitation this morning is the only invitation we've got is to respond to God's mercy, respond to God's grace. And it starts by showing it first to ourselves and letting it flow from us into the lives of others. Let's pray. Lord, I confess I am often guilty of sanitizing your word instead of letting it sanctify me. Uh, This morning I've sought to be faithful in actually letting this text say what it says. Lord, I know my own propensity to become a lawyer and look for loopholes and ways out of what you call me to because I find your mercy so overwhelming. I find your gratuitous grace so unbelievable. But Lord, don't let me leave this place without encountering Jesus. Don't let me walk out of this place without undergoing your mercy. Don't let me walk by you in this moment now and Lord in encountering you may you not let us walk by one another when others say it's politics Lord would you help us to have a proximity to the pain and make it personal when others ask questions of are they like me and worthy of mercy may we ask questions about they're just like me unworthy and yet can receive your mercy And what does that look like for it to be seen in my own life? Lord, we are so thankful for your grace. And we just ask for honest responses to your mercy now. Amen. If you're here this morning and you've never said yes to God's mercy, or you're here this morning and you realize that there are certain people you withhold mercy from, Weekly before we come to the table, we pray this prayer together. You'll maybe praying it for the first time, or maybe you're praying it for the hundredth time. But this is a prayer of confession because the only thing that would disqualify us from the mercy that flows from this table 
is thinking somebody else is disqualified. The only thing that would keep us from this table is thinking somebody else shouldn't be here. So as we prepare our hearts to where God promises to meet us, let's pray together. Most merciful God, we confess we've sinned against you in thought, word and deed. We've not loved you with our whole heart and we have not loved the neighbour, the stranger and our enemies as you have loved us. For the sake of your son Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, forgive us, fill us, that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways. And all God's people said, Amen. We're just going to stand. I'll ask the ushers to come and help. some point (laughs) so church we have come as we are but by his grace we are sent out not the same for in this place the spirit that anointed christ has been poured out over us he has exchanged a crown of beauty for our ashes the oil of joy for our sorrow and a garment of praise for our spirit of despair he has spoken over us a new name oaks of integrity and prophesied that we will grow into a canopy of his beauty to bless and rebuild this city in his unfailing, non-violent love. So go, broadcast good news for the poor, bind up brokenhearted, prophesy freedom for captives, let the blind see, set free the oppressed, live jubilee and forgive, blessing our enemies because Christ has shut the book on vengeance. Go now in his liberating grace that pardons and empowers sinners like us to participate in God's kingdom of mercy. And all God's people said, Amen.